0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. More than 40 years ago, Charles Manson and his mostly female commune killed nine people, among them the pregnant actress Sharon Tate. It was the culmination of a criminal career that Gwynn traces back to Manson's childhood. Jeff Gwynn is author of Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson, now out in paperback. He says he wanted to answer two questions with the book. Why does Manson's name still resonate with us all these years after those famous murders? And what happened in his life to make him the way he turned out? Jeff Gwynn says that in answering these questions, it was really like a trip across American history because Manson represents so many aspects of American society. Gwynn shows us how Manson created and refined his message to fit the times, persuading confused young women and a few young men that he had solutions to their problems. At the same time, he used them to pursue his long-standing musical ambitions. And his frustrated ambitions, combined with his bizarre race war obsession, would have lethal consequences. Jeff Gwynn is a former award-winning investigative journalist. He's the best-selling author of numerous books of fiction and nonfiction, including Go Down Together, the true untold story of Bonnie and Clyde, and The Last Gunfight, the real story of the shootout at the O.K. Corral and how it changed the West. Jeff Gwynn lives in Fort Worth, Texas. Mr. Gwynn, welcome to Access, Utah. Much. appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with us. I wonder uh, first of Pleasure. all uh, for for those of us uh, you know who have uh, just kind of a vague notion we hear the name Sharon Tate we we understand that's associated with with her her murder. um and uh, Charles Manson means many things to many people uh, including uh, you know Manson t-shirts and high schools and such uh, high schoolers who may not even have a you know a connection with uh, with the murders that happened in August of 1969 maybe give us a brief uh, thumbnail sketch of uh, of those murders
1: certainly uh, on August 9th and 10th in 1969 uh, seven murders were committed over two nights in Los Angeles the first five became referred to as the Tate Murders in a mansion high on a hill overlooking the city. Sharon Tate, uh, who was a relatively well-known actress, but was even more famous for her husband, Roman Polanski, the TV director-producer who was out of the country at the time, and four other people were killed that night. The next night, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, uh, two upper-middle-class folks in in another well-to-do L.A. neighborhood. Because of the absolute horrendous nature of the crimes, uh, people were just butchered, blood everywhere, words written on the walls and doors and appliances in blood, it caught national attention and caused uh, a lot of panic in Los Angeles, where it was assumed for a while that anybody might be murdered in their homes at any time. Uh, eventually, the uh, perpetrators were arrested out in the desert, a scruffy bunch of drifters led by Charles Manson who was a lifelong petty criminal uh, originally from West Virginia in a showcase trial that caught the world's attention. They were eventually convicted, sentenced to death, the death sentence was commuted, and so Charlie Manson is still with us, even as he's approaching his 80th birthday.
0: 80 now, wow, they are coming up on 80. Um, so I wonder, and we'll loop back, but I wonder just off the top, and I would wonder this as well: what maybe some bullet points uh, as to your first question that you set out to to answer: what, why Manson, why, why this continuing fascination? And you you write in your book, uh, you know, the teenagers in high school have Manson T-shirts. Uh, a lot of different views uh, about Manson, everything from you know he's a sociopath, deserved what he got to uh, there are a minority people who feel he was a uh, a hero.
1: Well, you, you know you can even get a Charlie Manson ringtone for your cell phone if, if you're in the mood to do that. But wow I don't understand why anybody would want it. Uh, one of the things as I was starting this book that made me wonder. Even though the murders themselves were horrendous, there have been so many terrible incidences since, and, and the names don't resonate. I don't think uh, most people can remember the names of the two teenage boys at Columbine. Uh, we've forgotten the name of the guy who shot up the Virginia Tech campus, and far more people died in those events. But I think Manson stays with us for a couple of reasons. First of all, we've got to go back to 1969 itself. And it it was uh, a time in America when it seemed almost anything was possible, both fantastic and horrible. You had the moonwalk, you had Woodstock, you had uh, Chappaquiddick with Ted Kennedy, you had the Vietnam War, you had riots in the streets. Something happened every day. And so these murders, particularly since a famous actress was involved, was part of that. The second thing was the book that was written uh, pretty much immediately after Manson's trial. It was called Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, and and Kurt Gentry, and it was a brilliant book. And it captured uh, the arrest of Manson and his followers in the trial and caught a lot of Charlie's scary personality. But it eventually sold nine million copies and became maybe one of the most popular mini Series TV shows uh, in history. So you had that. And then the third thing is Manson was supposed to die, but his the death sentence was commuted when the California Supreme Court determined that uh, executing someone was a violation of their rights. And so Charlie's been around ever since. He knows how to manipulate the media. Every once in a while, he'll do something outrageous and get his name in the news again. So it's a combination of those things.
0: Yeah, as I was reading that portion of your book, um, you know, I'd, I sort of had musings about uh, about the death penalty. Uh, one case is uh, very famous in Utah. Of course, it happened across the the nation. Ted Bundy, who was right. pretty good at manipulating the press, but he was executed, and so you don't hear about him as much anymore.
1: Oh well, then you've got Gary Gilmore, which of course was quite famous um, in Utah, and. Gilmore and a lot of these other mass killers actually kind of looked up to Charles Manson, and, and they would brag that they had some sort of association with him. Uh, Manson always wanted to be the most famous person in the world, and for a little while he just about accomplished that, and ever since he's at least certainly been a celebrity, which isn't necessarily an honor, but it's something he always wanted.
0: One of the reasons for the this continuing, uh, I guess, fame or infamy, uh, his crazy Charlie act, which you, you, you know, I, I guess you would, you would say that's definitely an act. And it's going it to become a stereotype.
1: He's been putting us on for 45 years, and he even said he was going to do it. In Death Valley, after the Tate-LaBianca murders, when Manson and the so-called Manson family have withdrawn to the desert, because Charlie's telling them that Helter Skelter, the apocalyptic race war, is coming any time now, Charlie called his followers together and said that if he was ever arrested again, he was going to play crazy Charlie. He was going to act insane until the courts decided that he couldn't be responsible for anything and let him go. But he warned his followers, don't believe what you're seeing. And to this day, when you talk to Leslie Van Houten or Patricia Krenwinkel, two of the convicted LaBianca killers who are serving life sentences in California, they will tell you their greatest frustration when they come up for parole is when the parole board members say, well, how could you follow somebody who's so obviously a lunatic? And their answer is always the same. What you're seeing is not the way he acted with us.
0: Hmm. Uh, uh, A ploy. A ploy. Yeah. Uh, I wonder he, he wanted, I guess his main goal, he wanted to be famous. He originally set out uh, to, to, to get famous by writing music, right?
1: Well, actually, Charlie's uh, initial goal in life was to uh, get rich through stealing cars. And when he got sent to jail for that, uh, he studied the pimps in prison and decided that's what he would do. Uh, it was only during his second very long adult jail term that he heard a band on the radio the Beatles. And right away, when he saw how much attention was being paid to them, he decided that he would become the most famous rock and roll musician in history. Now, Charlie could play guitar, he could play piano, he could sing a little. But his gifts as as a musician were pretty modest. He didn't see it that way. And when he got out of prison, when he'd recruited his family of followers, mostly in Haight-Ashbury and San Francisco during the Summer of Love, he headed down to Los Angeles, positive he was going to sign a recording deal and get rich and famous. That didn't happen, and that was part of his thwarted ambition that ultimately led to
0: murder. Hmm. You, uh, one of your chapters, back to the last chapter. Um, it has a provocative title, interesting title: "The Wrong Man in the Right Place at the Right Time." And uh, and you say in there that. Uh, this is a good passage that if uh, Charles Manson had been incarcerated in Nebraska and paroled and tried to recruit Nebraska farm girls, the effect would have been very different. He wouldn't have been able to, to recruit a a you know a family.
1: Well, the, the whole thing was with Manson throughout his life, and it's a scary thing to follow. Always he found himself at a point where he could take advantage of some cultural shift and and use it for his own means. Uh, It really started in prison when when he was nothing but uh, a failed car thief. He was a failed pimp. And then the prison system in America decides we're going to try to train inmates so they can succeed better in the outside world. This was something new. And he was able to take a Dale Carnegie course, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, we know from his cellmates, because they found them, that Manson was entranced by Dale Carnegie in the course. He memorized everything in it. He used those lines to talk young women into joining his following. He finds himself in San Francisco, just at the height of the summer of love, when you've got all these confused kids coming into the area, in hundreds and thousands of them every day, all looking for someone to tell them how to live their lives. If, if he hadn't been there in that year, this couldn't have happened. Down in Los Angeles, just at the exact time Los Angeles takes over from New York, it is the center of the recording industry. So much of Manson's life is just horrible coincidence. And the only thing that you can say about him that, in a sense, is positive is that he was smart enough to take advantage of it.
0: Hmm. Boy, Dale Carnegie would would be very distressed. I would. I well, no, I, I certainly
1: would think so. And yeah. yet, when you talk to some of his former followers and ask them, "What's what are the first things Manson said to you that kind of hooked you in, that made you want to go with him, be with him?" They'll tell you, and then word for word, it's straight out of Chapter Seven, "How to Win Friends and Influence People."
0: Wow. Uh, so, uh, I think we could say that Charles Manson was is a sociopath right? Re-
1: oh, very much so. And uh, the problem is, of course, that so many of us tend to think of sociopaths as sort of ignorant, bumbling people. In fact, uh, most of them are very crafty, very clever. Manson never really learned to read and write well. But in terms of being able to manipulate people, uh, the man has a Ph.D.
0: Hmm. So uh, as many sociopaths would, he 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 took advantage, as you say, of the opportunities would find damaged people, give them what they thought they wanted, I suppose?
1: Well, when you look at the characteristics of sociopaths, there's a couple that really stick out in terms of, of who Charles Manson was and what he did. First of all, they believe they are entitled to anything they want. Second, they believe if they don't get what they want, the people denying them are evil, the people denying them are wrong. They have no compunction about hurting or using anyone. In any relationship, all they're interested in is what they can get out of it, though they may have to try to trick the other person into thinking he or she's benefiting too. Uh, One of the best descriptions I heard of Charlie Manson in the three years I was researching and writing this book comes from a guy named Greg Jacobson, who uh, knew him and knew the family pretty well in Los Angeles. And Jacobson said, looking back on it, he thinks that Charles Manson is a cancer cell, in that he only could thrive... By basically taking away everything else all around him, and and that's Charles Manson.
0: I wonder, uh, just before we go to break here, your your second uh, very interesting question that you set out to, to to answer in writing this book, um, gets us and we'll we'll get we'll get into his his early years, but I wonder about uh, how much is Charles Manson a product of his time. How much is he just taking advantage of the opportunities presented by by that time, the, the 60s?
1: Charles Manson is always called a product of the 60s, but that's only partially true. He's also a product of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And to understand what he did and how he did it, we have to go all the way back to the beginning with him because it's a progression. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And if we study Manson, essentially we're studying the way America changed over the course of 40 years.
0: And, in fact, this is um, I I think this is something you set up to do when you write your books. You're looking for a period of American history, and then you look for a a key figure.
1: Well, the the whole idea, it seems to me, of of reading history, if we're going to ask readers, okay, I want you to read my book, I want you to sort of see and assimilate what's in it, you can't just list what happened. You have to give context. You're trying to show how and why things happened. Because the more we understand that, the more we can get a grasp on how we need to control events much more than the way we let them control us. Hmm. So I wanted to write about the 1960s in America, and I used Manson as a window to that. But you can't understand the 60s if we don't understand what happened running up to them.
0: Hmm. We're going to take a break. When we come back, more with Jeff Gwynn. Uh, he's authored several best-selling books. The latest, very interesting book called Manson, Life and Times of Charles Manson. It's out now in paperback. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Addison Bread, A 300 South and 300 West in Logan open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and box lunches. Information at com.
1: Just when you thought it was safe to enter your garden, well, there's a lot of reproducing
0: going on as insects prepare for the fall. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, USU Extension entomologist Diane Alston helps you control the bad guys while encouraging the good guys using integrated pest management. Die earwigs, live lady beetles. Then it's the circle of life as Nancy Williams reads a favorite literary selection on petals and Prose. That's this Thursday at 10 o'clock on The Zesty Garden. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about Charles Manson on the program today. He remains uh, an icon. And uh, one of the purposes of, the, of Jeff Gwynn's book, he wanted to set out to, uh, to find out why. Why Manson remains in, in the popular consciousness how he became the uh, person he uh, became, and we'll uh, get into that as we go along, back to uh, um, Charles Manson's childhood. And in fact, uh, new for this book, Jeff Gwynne interviewed Manson's sister and cousin, neither of whom had ever previously cooperated with with an author. He also interviewed childhood friends, cellmates, some members of the Manson family who provided new information about Manson's life. Um, the book is Manson, and the author is Jeff Gwynn. You're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will. 1-800-826-1495. one 826 1495 Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And, in fact, we have this email from Steve in Arizona. Steve says, as a sociopath, Charlie Manson is far from alone in his ability to, quote, win friends and influence people, And quote. Sociopaths tend to be good at that sort of thing, which is why there's a high percentage of sociopaths among America's CEOs. That's uh, Steve's comment. Your, your reaction, Jeff Gwynn.
1: Well, I've thought for many years now, since I started studying Charlie, that if instead of crime instead of murder, if he had turned his attention say to uh, selling things, he probably would have been the best salesman who ever lived. And uh in effect I think that uh that email is right. Sociopaths have the ability to attract people, they have the ability to persuade people. We've probably even got a few of them in uh shall we say elective office.
0: hmm Yeah, I guess that, that uh factor you were talking about before of uh you know I deserve everything and uh it doesn't matter so much how how I get there.
1: And the other main attribute Charlie had, uh, his favorite way of describing himself to people was to call himself the man of a thousand hats. And by that he meant, and he bragged, that he could change personality in an instant depending upon the situation in which he found himself or the person in which he was dealing, that he could always be whatever the other person wanted him to be he said it was something he could just do without even thinking about it and that's probably true.
0: Hmm. Tell me a bit about his philosophy. He he and I don't know if it changed over time but he 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 had a um, uh, you know a philosophy that he would preach to his to his followers and I guess that which uh, drew them in uh, maybe the main thing was his personal you know charisma or manipulation.
1: Well, Manson by the time he had acquired followers and and started to preach to them, drew from three different sources. Uh, First was the book of Revelation in the Bible. Uh, Manson's background, uh, his grandmother was a, a Nazarene. She firmly believed that every word in the Bible was true. She expected Charlie, when he lived with her, to go to church every Sunday. And he would sit there and he would listen and he was particularly struck by the book of Revelation. He also said the lyrics of Beatles songs were in fact prophecy, and his third source of, of information for his preachings, some would call them rantings, were things he picked up from the other street gurus in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury in 1967 and 1968. He'd cobble all that together, and then he'd figure out a way to present it, that would reinforce what he was trying to say, that he was perhaps the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, that he was certainly the chosen one of his generation, and that if you followed him, not only would Charlie end up eventually ruling the world after Helter Skelter, the apocalyptic race war, but his followers would be set up in power too, much like the apostles of Jesus. And the fact that you had uh, about 25, 35 people Going around believing this is not only a testimony to how persuasive Manson could be, but also to how many drugs they were ingesting at the time. Mm.
0: I guess that's that's a key. For example, I, you know, I'm I am i am just young enough that I, that I wasn't um, swept up in the Beatles. But uh, you know, I pulled up the lyrics to Helter Skelter, and I guess you can interpret this many different ways. But uh, you know, I certainly don't get. Uh, a uh, you know something triggering a race war and, and the apocalypse.
1: Well, that's because you're a sensible person. Manson not only said "Helter Skelter" was talking about the coming race war, but other songs on the Beatles' White Album, in particular a song called "Blackbird," which Paul McCartney wrote about a bird, but Charlie claimed was about the black race. Uh, a song called "Honey Pie." about a singer crossing the Atlantic. Charlie said that meant the Beatles were going to come join the Manson family and uh, help them lead the world when when the time came. One of the uh, really sad, moving moments I had when I was researching this book is Manson caused his followers to put so much stock into Helter Skelter, the song. This is what's gonna happen, this apocalyptic thing. And then I found an interview by John Lennon uh, after he'd left the Beatles, and this was shortly after Manson uh, had been sentenced to death in the Tate LaBianca murder trial. And an interviewer asked Lennon how he felt that Charles Manson had taken a Beatles song and turned it into something so awful. And Lennon said, well, of course, uh, Manson's crazy, and that as far as the Beatles were concerned, uh, there was no message to Helter Skelter at all. It was just a bunch of noise.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Th- there is there is a sad element to that. Um, it, it, maybe you could t- tell me a little bit more about the, this 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 atmosphere. Uh, uh, Charles Manson, a central part of his uh, beliefs, I suppose, what he was preaching to his followers was this coming race war, uh, which would trigger this this apocalypse, and he and his followers would end up, you know, very well in, in this. Uh, part of this is the atmosphere of the, of the late '60s, right? Uh, um, a well, race race okay, war is, okay. is plausible to to people who maybe you're taken in by this
1: well manson wasn't the only one who thought a race war was coming in america in the mid to late 1960s uh, just about every summer unleashed violence in uh, impoverished areas of major american cities Uh, los angeles perhaps most of all with the watts riot these things were happening for all kinds of social and cultural reasons But that made it easy for Manson to use it in his example of what he said was coming. He used them to bind his followers to him even more tightly. As he explained it, uh, the Bible, the Beatles say the race war is coming helter-skelter. And in it, the blacks are going to rise up and slaughter the whites. The few whites who don't die will be enslaved by the blacks, and that's only fair because the white people made slaves of the blacks for so long. But, Manson said, as everybody knows, or at least as far as Charlie knew, blacks did not have the intelligence, did not have the ability to rule themselves. So when the race war was over and the rest of the white race had been obliterated or enslaved, the Manson family, who would be hiding out in Death Valley, in the desert, would reemerge and be welcomed because they would be the only ones with the intelligence to be rulers. So Charlie's using current events to reinforce the reason that his followers have to stay with him. He said, if you don't stay with me, if you leave the family, if you go out there, then you're either dying or you're going to be a slave. So those are your choices. Rule later or die or be a slave now.
0: Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Jeff Gwynn. He's the uh, best-selling author of uh, several books, the latest of which is Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Mansion, Manson, and it's uh, out now in uh, paperback. Uh, some of this, a- as you present this, uh, there are very logical um, arguments as to why things happened the way they did, one of which is if you are a charismatic and manipulative leader of a, of a cult, um, you have to deliver. The things you say are going to happen better happen, or, or your you know, followers will start drifting away. And that, that happened with, with Manson. That's one reason why things escalated.
1: Very much so. If, you're, if you set yourself up as a guru, if you set yourself up as a savior, you have to keep continually providing miracles or results for your followers to stay. Uh, You can't, over a period of a couple of years, keep claiming all these things are going to happen and then have nothing happen. They're going to drift away. So you have to keep succeeding if you're going to be a guru, if you're going to be a cult leader. For a while, Manson could do that. He promised his followers he would give them better lives. Almost all of them came from devastating family backgrounds. He said, fine, you're going to be with people who love you. And to an extent, they felt that. He told them if they followed him and gave up all their possessions, he would see that they really didn't need for anything. And so they're squatting first with Dennis Wilson, the Beach Boys drummer, then out on Spawn Ranch. They learn how to feed themselves by dumpster diving. And Manson gets them contact with some of the biggest stars in, in rock and roll, everybody from the Beach Boys to Neil Young to the Mamas and the Papas. So they're getting these things. But Charlie made the mistake finally of letting them see something that he wanted for himself, and that was rock and roll stardom. When that didn't happen, when Charlie knew that wasn't going to happen, something else had to occur. And what was left was, if not actually bringing on Helter Skelter, the apocalyptic race war that I think deep down Manson knew was never going to happen. If at least he could cause a race riot, maybe another Watts in Los Angeles. That would let him turn to his followers and say, well, look at that, I told you it was coming. We are the ones that really caused these great events. So getting turned down right and left for record contracts when his followers were expecting it to happen for him, that was one of the very direct causes for the murders August 9th and 10th in 1969.
0: I wanted to follow up with something you said. You, You believe he did not believe himself that this apocalypse was coming.
1: To a certain extent, the most talented liars take a grain of truth and then embellish on it. Certainly Manson, like just about any other American with an IQ and more of single digits in the summer of 1969, had a sense that even more racial violence was imminent in the cities. It had been going on, it wasn't stopping, it was going to happen again. So he can take this and then he can expound on it and try to twist it to make it seem like it's the fulfillment of a prophecy. He was clever that way. If you look at people like him, they take actual facts, be it uh, Dale Carnegie ideas of, of how to attract people, or the fact that there's been a lot of racial violence and there's more to come, and twist it for your own ends. He did that constantly.
0: Hmm. Why Why the uh, targets that they selected? Why Why the uh, Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate residents, for example?
1: One of the myths that's come down all these years about Manson and the murders is that uh, on August the 9th, the Sharon Tate murders were committed at Cielo Drive in Los Angeles because Manson thought that Terry Melcher, the music producer who had turned him down, still lived there. That's not true. Manson knew that Melcher had moved. But from Spahn Ranch, which is isolated outside Los Angeles, it can be hard to find your way to anywhere in the city. Manson and Tex Watson, one of his followers, had already been to Cielo Drive while Melcher lived there. Manson wanted murders of rich, famous white people, apparently committed by black militants. He thought that would get attention, that would cause some reaction. So even though Melcher didn't live there anymore, and Manson wasn't sure who did, he was positive whoever lived there was famous enough, there would be all kinds of media coverage of the murders, and hopefully that would start the race war that he'd been promising, or at least some riots. So the first night, people were picked not because of who they were, but where they lived. That's also true the second night. When the first murders didn't get the reaction Manson wanted, uh, he set up a couple more in another upper-class neighborhood, and the house he picked was next door to a house where the family members had attended some parties over the years. Again, they knew how to get there from Spawn Ranch, so it was location, not identity.
0: And the the second murders uh, sort of got lost in the Uh, you know, in the shuffle, I believe.
1: Well, that's kind of the way of the world's attention. Uh, Rosemary and Lino LaBianca were upper-middle-class folks. They were certainly innocent, and there was no reason for them to have been butchered like they were. But the media and the public attention was constantly drawn back to Sharon Tate, the, the pregnant actress married to the famous Roman Polanski. Uh, That was the kind of glitz and glamour that sold newspapers that got people to watch TV programs. And I think we've talked about people can't remember who was at Columbine. Five people died that first night. Sharon Tate was one of them. They're known as the Tate Murders. Yet very few people remember the names of any of the other four
0: who died. Yeah, yeah, that unfortunately happens a lot. It does. Uh, So... uh, uh, I believe this this you know once, once these murders got out this this put the area on edge didn't it because the ones in a, a rich area can't even be protected by security measures and the the, uh, the second murder was in a a little more modest circumstances so uh, it's not just rich people who who might get murdered.
1: Well fear swept Los Angeles after the second night that the people were just being slaughtered in their homes and it could happen to anyone anywhere. It was a situation where a few days before Guard dogs selling for $200 were now going for $1,000. Every gun store was was sold out of guns and ammunition. And for a while, panic swept the city, and and with good reason. But after the second night of murders, uh, Manson and his family committed only one more, a ranch hand uh, on on Spahn Ranch. And then they escaped to the desert. But for a long time, the people in Los Angeles were just waiting for the next bloody shoe to drop.
0: Mm. How did they get uh, caught? What, what was the, what were the circumstances that, that that led investigators to Manson and his family?
1: It was all by accident. Uh, the night after the day after the Tate murders, uh, a couple of county sheriff's detectives tried to talk to the LAPD investigators. There had been a murder of uh, a music teacher named Gary Hinman a couple weeks earlier that apparently had a lot in common with the Sharon Tate murders, uh, words written in blood and so forth. Uh, Manson was behind that first murder. Uh, A friend of the family, Bobby Beausoleil, acting on Manson's instructions, had murdered Hinman and then tried to make it look like black militants had had done the deed. Uh, Hinman got caught, was arrested in jail on murder charges. Manson was afraid that he'd be implicated by Hinman. So part of the reason to commit murders on the night of August 9th was also to have a copycat killing that then the county sheriff's office would have to let Beausoleil go since obviously the same killer was out there loose. Manson never was suspected of those murders, neither were his family. They escape out into Death Valley where a couple months later they are arrested for auto theft. They're brought in for auto theft. Uh, Susan Atkins, one of Manson's followers, captured in the desert, starts bragging about uh, her involvement in some other killings, which eventually on investigation turns out to be the Tate murders. From there, uh, Manson finally is implicated. But it was uh, a series of goofs on the part of investigators, and finally sheer luck because Susan Atkins couldn't keep her mouth shut.
0: Wow. Wow. So they, they might well have gotten away with it, at least for time. They
1: might well have gotten away with it, and if they had, Manson somewhere, somehow, would have had his followers doing something just as bad or worse. That's mm-hmm. the way he was, and that's the way he still
0: is. Yeah. We're taking another break. We'll come back with uh, Jeff Gwynn. He's author of uh, several best-selling books. The latest is Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson. Uh, it's out now in paperback. Uh, Jeff Gwynn says he uh, set out to answer a couple of key questions. Why does Manson's name still resonate with us all these years after those famous murders? And what happened in his life to make him the way he turned out? In our last segment coming up, we'll go back to his, uh, his childhood. Uh, in fact, uh, Jeff Gwynn was able to interview Manson's sister and cousin, neither of whom had ever previously cooperated with an author. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a catch-valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Time to make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health will be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe for Raisin Oat Muffin. We always have a great time, so will you, on Zorba Pastor on Your Health, from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for being with me today. My guest is Jeff Gwynn, best-selling author of several books, including The Last Gunfight, The Real Story of the Shootout at the OK Corral and How It Changed the American West, and Go Down Together, The True Untold Story of Bonnie and Clyde. His latest book is Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson. It's now out in paperback. Jeff Gwynn in his book shows us how Manson created and refined his message to fit the times, persuading confused young women and a few men that he had the solutions to their problems. At the same time, he used them to pursue his longstanding musical ambitions, and his frustrated ambitions combined with his bizarre race war obsession would have lethal consequences. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Jeff Kuhn, I wonder if you'd uh, tell us a bit about Manson's followers, the the, the family. Maybe you know, to pick out one or two of these young women, tell us uh, about them. And I think, in uh, parenthetically, when we get into this that Manson still has followers, still has websites, still has people who, I guess, believe in him.
1: Well, Manson found his original followers uh, for the family. Among those confused kids who found their way out to California usually hate Ashbury in 1967 and 1968 because of so much publicity about this sort of hippie heaven. Uh, There were were a lot of kids who had problems at home and thought they would go there and they would find new cultural values, uh, enlightenment. They just needed someone to lead them. I spent an awful lot of time uh, in Corona, California, at the women's prison there, interviewing Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel, uh, two of of Manson's hardcore followers who ended up uh, serving life sentences for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and talked to them a lot about the other family members, and and they all shared uh, this common thing. They were young, and they were looking for someone who could tell them a way to have a better life. Manson promised to do that, and once he had them in his clutches, he was always expert at keeping them isolated from other influences. Spawn Ranch was good for that. Uh, there were daily uh, drug sessions, usually LSD, when Manson would be smart enough to take very little himself, administer heavy doses to the others, and then preach to them. And, until the time came when they were so dependent on Charlie that there was no question they would follow his orders no matter what. It's the kind of indoctrination that's been used by master brainwashers uh, for centuries. And, and Manson, though he probably didn't know about the technique as such, simply understood it. It, it was natural to him, and he used it. He's using it today. Uh, he has any number of active followers. He's, uh, he's in prison in, in Corcoran, Corcoran State Prison in California. Uh, but he's mastered social media. Uh, There's a website, ATWA, Air Trees, Waters, Animals. Uh, Charlie's reinvented himself now as a strict environmentalist who uh, wants people to enlist in his effort to to try to clean up the world and save it from pollution. Uh, If you send Charlie money, he uh, might draw you a picture or something. He will have some of his current uh, followers get in touch with you. When I was writing this book, and he didn't want me to, he even turned my contact information over to some of those current followers who got in touch, and that was certainly interesting for me. He's unfortunately still very much with us.
0: Were, were there threats, implied threats? You know, if you write the book.
1: Well, uh, from Charlie, he sent he sent me uh, quite an interesting letter. Uh, his his followers would uh, ask me a lot of uh, demanding questions over emails and, and in letters. And as long as they were coherent and didn't call me obscene names, I would try to respond to them. Uh, The people who are following him, it seems to me, uh, have many of the same traits of the followers he had in the 1960s. They're young, they feel alienated, and they see Charles Manson as some sort of superhero that they hope will eventually get out of prison and come back to lead them in the world into better ways.
0: What do you make of the you know the Manson T-shirts you sometimes see in in, in high schools? It just there's a big disconnect there. That, well, I hope there's a disconnect there. The kids don't well, understand.
1: Uh, you get you get kids now who who were born you know twenty five thirty years after the murders, and they're not sure who Charlie Manson is. But all they know is he's some kind of cool social rebel. And the kids who wear Manson T-shirts. Uh, Maybe they're the same ones who wear T-shirts for Che Guevara and other people who supposedly are are social and cultural revolutionaries. They don't know exactly what he did, but they feel that by promoting him, they're protesting. And so they do it. And then, of course, we've always got the ongoing fascination on the part of some people with evil. There are collectors, memorabilia collectors out in this country, whose homes are shrines to Charles Manson. I've, I've been in some of them. They correspond with him. They send him a lot of money. He uh, draws them portraits that they frame and hang on their mantles. It's uh, it's kind of baffling why people would do that, but there are plenty of people who do.
0: Yeah, you used the word baffling. Uh, I was going to ask you, what, what do you think that's about?
1: There is always an element of fascination with horror, uh, It's almost impossible for most people to drive by the side of a bad car wreck without wanting to look. We stare even though we know we shouldn't. Manson's longevity in and of itself is part of what's cementing him into our consciousness. He wasn't executed as scheduled. Uh, He plays the media every now and then. Currently he's got a thing going where there's a young girl claiming to be his wife and Charlie is saying openly, Well, I didn't really tell her that, but he's enjoying all the attention he's getting. He knows how to play us. He knows how to keep himself in front of us. And one of the things I hope uh, is a result of my book is at least I'm destroying the mythology. He made up just about everything about his childhood, about his background, and we've been able to prove these are lies. The more we actually know about him, the truth, uh, the less interesting he becomes, I hope.
0: Tell me a bit about his uh, childhood. It seems like at a very early age he was getting into trouble.
1: He was, but not for the reasons he's claimed. He's always represented himself as the illegitimate child of a teenage prostitute who tried to sell him for a pitcher of beer because she didn't want him around, and none of that is true. Uh, The fact is that for a couple of years while Charlie was young, his mother was in prison, but he was taken care of, he was taken in by relatives who, in general, coddled him, He got to see his mother all the time. She loved him very much. The first recorded instance of him being violent towards someone is when he tried to attack someone with a sickle. He was seven years old at the time. He was pulling armed robberies by the time he was 13, Uh, all sorts of car theft. Uh, He was in juvenile detention centers growing up because he deserved to be there. It is true they were terrible dark, awful places at the time, and bad things happened to him there. But it is equally true that he learned the way of the jungle and became a predator himself, at one point missing a chance for parole because he sodomized another boy while holding a sharp implement to his throat. Manson, from the start, was violent, was dangerous, was a liar. Uh, It wasn't done to him as he claims. For whatever reason, he simply was that way from birth.
0: Hmm. The, uh, the the cover photograph is interesting. This is a young Manson. He's smiling. He's in a suit. And this, I believe, is around the time that he used his manipulation skills to uh, get a judge to send him to Boys Town.
1: Yep, there's Charlie Manson, 14 years old, uh, up for armed robbery, looking sweet and innocent. Of course, he was very tiny. He's only five foot four, even fully grown. And Manson went before a judge in, uh, in Ohio and convinced the judge that he was a Catholic. Because of that, instead of sending him back to reform school, the judge sent him to Boys Town in Nebraska, you know, the famous place. And uh, Charlie lasted at to Boys Town four days before he stole a priest's car, and headed out to California. So that's the kind of kid he was. He knew how to look innocent. He looked knew how to appear angelic. And all the time, he's just waiting for his next opportunity.
0: Hmm. We've talked a bit about what uh, Manson means to, to different people, and, and uh, I think you're trying to influence that, that narrative. I wonder what you think Manson should mean as, as we think about him.
1: Charles Manson disturbs me for this reason. Prior to researching and writing this book, and I'm 63 now, the beliefs that I hold I've held for some time, it was always my conviction that there was never a child beyond redemption, that there was never any human being who, under the right circumstances, couldn't change for the better, and I was very much against the death penalty. Now, having studied Charles Manson in detail for a long time, I'm now sorry to say I think there are some people who, almost from childhood, are beyond redemption. In terms of whether someone should be executed for horrific crimes, now I'm not sure. I waver back and forth, but I do know this. We have spent millions and millions of dollars since 1969 and 1970 keeping Charles Manson relatively safe and secluded from the rest of us, He's never going to change, he's going to turn 80 in November, and if by some terrible twist of fate he was freed at age 80, he would immediately go out, try to recruit more followers and lead them into some other god-awful acts. So reading this book has shaken my faith in the essential goodness of humanity. I think there occasionally are aberrations, and Manson is one of them.
0: What about his followers? You've interviewed, uh, you know, his followers a- as of t- uh, today. Some of them, uh, and I wonder, you know, I guess they're always going to people going to be people who are susceptible to being influenced by these types of people, like Manson is.
1: Very much so, and we're going to keep seeing it over and over again. What we have to do better is recognize these charlatans for what they are, and ultimately do more to try to protect people from them we don't do that people like Manson know how to take advantage of society they know how to take advantage of the law every once in a while as I said there's this aberration and because of them terrible things happen Manson is not someone to admire in any sense but maybe in studying his life we can learn an important lesson
0: and it is it is kind of scary to, to think, as you said, you know, wrong man, right place, right time. There are other sociopaths out there who, you know, just are waiting for the right circumstances.
1: There are, and I hope we identify them a lot quicker than we identified Charles Manson. Hmm.
0: By the way, what's, what's your next project? Yeah.
1: Well, I do a couple things. I, I write some fiction for Putnam. I'm working on a novel for them, and I've decided that my next nonfiction book has to sort of segue into the 1970s. And I'm following the life and times of a man who was everything Charles Manson wanted to be and uh, ultimately failed to be, a man who caught national attention and had thousands of followers. And unfortunately, his name was Jim Jones.
0: Jim Jones, wow. So uh, maybe after that one, you'll have to do a Brighton Cherry book, huh?
1: I think probably I'm going
0: to write a history of Santa Claus. There you go. There you go. Jeff Gwynn, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Very interesting uh, topic. Uh, The the book is Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson. Jeff Gwynn, uh, the author, has been our guest. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And uh, join uh, Sherry Quinn tomorrow. She'll be in with science questions. And uh, for today, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening to Access Utah.